Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. Well, I'm really excited to be talking with you, Sam, from the Herbal Medics Academy, and you're located in Taos, New Mexico. And man, I've been following you and looking at your work and interacting with you in like social media for at least it feels like 10 years, although it might be only like five or six. But I'm just really happy to hear because having you talk about the work you do and have been doing for decades, really about herbal medicine and wilderness skills, it's it's just a phenomenal forest educator path that isn't really followed by that many people. But to me, it's a really legitimate way to get people interested in uh, nature and sustainability and and all of that thank you so much for being here and yeah, yeah. thanks for thanks for having me this is just wonderful i'm looking forward to it yeah yeah absolutely one of the things that i have always loved about your work is that you're almost exclusively focused on really really diving into helping people learn about the the herbal medicine uh, herbal first aid taking people out and really doing the work on a like clinical level as opposed to just theoretical. And so many times I've seen people give like herb, herbal walks or plant walks where you just walk around and you're like, oh, evening primrose, here it is. And they show you show it to someone for five minutes and you, t- you list all the things and then you go to dandelion and then you walk to nettle and then everyone's just wow. And then it's over and then you're like, I'm a healer or I'm an herbalist. And that's good. Like people like learning at that level. But you're, the work you've done is different because you're actually going a number of steps further. And so I'm just, I'm curious as to how you got into that and just what was your path to make this happen like this? This is really amazing. Sure. Yeah. And and for me, really, I, there was, I grew up in a very plant literate family, I always say. And I had a mother that we were gardeners. We grew up, we grew our own food and, and canned and everything. And at that time, it was back in the, the late 60s for me. And early 70s. And I remember at the age of four or five, my mother explaining to me that the plants that she talked to always did better when talking to plants. There's always been a connection. And we lived, uh, my dad was a geologist, worked for the Bureau of Mines. And we were up in in northeastern uh, Washington at the time. And then we moved when I was about 11 down to Colorado. But for that period of time, a really young period of time, I had two older brothers, much older than I. And um, we would go in the summer to Montana, usually Idaho, and he would have to do his field work, like collect samples and stuff, right? For as a geologist. And so we would be, he would go back on horseback and we'd go in there and, and uh, we'd put up a big canvas tent and live like Swiss Family Robinson. And my brothers, nice. who were much older than I were, it was really important. They, they were into engineering and kind of what I would call now off-grid engineering and what I do call it. We teach it and just basic stuff. I grew up with that as a way we stayed, we spent an entire summer in the field every summer. So <clears throat> it was very common to just think that was pretty much normal. And uh, even moving to Colorado the first summer, we, we spent the entire summer camping and my parents found a home for us to live in. That was part of my childhood. But then when I got into the military the second time, I, second time around, I became a special forces medic. And prior to that, I was really interested in herbal medicine, very interested. And I even got one of those old naturopathic, the old school, not an actual licensed naturopathic, way before that happened. 
I would never put that on a resume. I'm like ashamed of it. But I learned a little bit about herbs at the time, enough to, to get a start. And then I and then from there, I just bootstrapped myself up and had a friend who was a botanist and really learned a lot about ideeing. And then I just I spent you know, hours every day. I would spend, I would live in the field. And at the time, I was also very interested in basic wilderness skills too. And I, I taught that for the military, literally, and in, in, as I was in SF, but I was already at a much deeper level than, than the military idea of survival, right? It's military idea of survival is you got a knife and a compass, and maybe a gun and something to start a fire with and so forth. And so I was always was like, what if you don't have all that stuff? And so it was always very sure. interesting. I remember my first Bodro fire I, I used, to, it was in Colorado, I lived in Colorado, of course, and I would just go on these excursions where I would test all my stuff and I would only live off what was there. I had an elk skin I would take and that was it and freeze my ass off during the night. And then and I started to find a connection to the earth that way to where I would find, I would be like, man, I'm really hungry and I need something. I got to have something and go around like a little, come around a bend of, of gold I'm in or something and it would just be like rose hips everywhere or be prickly pear uh, fruits everywhere or acorns. And, and those little, the gamble uh, oak shrubs there, the, you can eat those acorns raw. They are bitter, but they're not anywhere near the live oak or some of the oaks that you really got to leach. So I would live off the land in that way. And it was, of course, I wouldn't, I was using it in time of, of abundance. But I think even at that time I was learning, a lot of things about how the the planet provides when you have a certain mentality. And and I think that was my spiritual link to the earth. And I am as much as I'm, a, I think, very pragmatic. And, and a lot of people think I'm like a, almost militant. I'm not at all coming from a military background for me, but I'm a, definitely a tree-hugging, barefoot, <laughs> earth-loving hippie at heart in yeah. that regard. And I think herbal medicine, you have to be. You can, it's not a linear progression of saying, I'm going to learn some constituents and learn about this plant. And now I'm going to learn when it's all, all in the book. And it's all about really connecting to the plant. It's alive medicine. Plants are alive. Just back on the topic of survival, I remember learning, teaching myself a Baudrill fire. I used some library book or something where I found pictures and stuff. I was like, oh, I can do this. So then I started practicing. And I was working with Aspen. And and it, I didn't, Aspen seems like it should work, but it doesn't at all. And I think it's tricky. My theory is because there's so many air pockets, it's, it's kind of spongy because there's a species of, of we call it um, a Roosevelt willow. In the hill country in Texas, too, that's similar in, in that way. That, and you would think it looks like it should definitely be a great friction fire wood, but it's not. It just, you could sit there all day. Right. But anyway, I spent like all summer and I finally got a fire off of Aspen. And then I wanted to go learn about brain tanning. And there was this man and woman or man and wife uh, um, kind of school that, that taught in Boulder. And I went there and you had to learn brain tanning. You had to do the whole course. And I just, I just want to learn brain tanning. No, you got to do the whole three day survival course to get there. It's like, okay. <laughs> So the first thing they teach us is, is Bodro fire and they're bringing up like so tall and big old yucca and stuff. And I didn't know all I knew was Aspen. And I remember him explaining it and everything. I was like, yeah, whatever. And now I got this. So he gives us the stuff to work with. And five minutes later, I'm like, zoop, 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 boom. He's yeah. You've been doing this before. And I said, well, yeah, I've been doing it with Aspen. He goes, oh no, you can't do it with Aspen. Said, yeah. I've been working with Aspen. And so that's kind of like that approach <laughs> of do it with the hardest wood. And I didn't intend to do that. I just thought it was really hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was when I first started learning about wood really learning more about that. And so that was 35 years of whatever, 30 years ago. And I I think really always been, I guess my point was that I've always feel, felt that there's a, there's a, a kinship and a, a very close relationship between the medicine that we take from the earth and the live medicine and understanding the plants on every level of what we call survival, but really it's just life. It's just living to understand sure. 
certain woods give us certain kinds of, of heat and certain woods can, you can start a fire with and certain woods or certain you know aspects of the terrain that give us good shelter and how to do that are all things that we've been so far away from that for so long as a species that it seems like almost like magic to some people or like this incredible science to learn it. But it's, it really, a lot of that stuff, I guess my point is, is just, it's inside of us already. When I think of yeah. that, that's my discovery period of, oh, somehow, I don't know how, if you believe in prior lifetimes, I don't know, whatever your belief system is, but it's mm-hmm. in my DNA. I'd like to, I, to just know that you drop me in the middle of the woods here, of the mountains, for some reason, I really, really associate with mountains. Um, and I'll figure it out. And that's easy to say. As you get older and older, and of course, I do a lot of search and rescue and stuff too, and have, and it's like you, you realize it's, the older I get, the more cautious I get, the more I realize there is definitely, you can make mistakes and they can be life ending mistakes if you're not careful. And maybe I've just always lucked out, but I always had this sort of earth will take care of me attitude about all of this. And it really, I think it was in the beginning, really a lot of fresh energy that I was able to bring to it. And so I was combining a lot of things, martial arts and functional fitness way before it was called that and survival. But then mostly it was always back around to medicine. And from medicine standpoint, I've always taught from the same standpoint that I learned medicine, which was first aid and emergency medicine first, and then start building from there to acute care, to chronic issues. And then all the different paradigms that we can look at all of those, those types of illness with and, most of all, I think is important on any of those things that we teach that there's a very pragmatic, practical approach. And so for me, it's always been, yeah, you can talk about this all day, like a copy paste book or something, but does it really work? And I've had, I've worked with thousands and thousands of tens, maybe tens of thousands, I don't know, people over 30 years. And I feel like I, I have enough empirical evidence to be able to say out of a hundred people that had this condition or had this situation that was very similar for 80% of them, for 80 of them, or, or more, maybe 85, maybe even 90 of them, right. as far as I know, based on follow-up and stuff, this really worked well. That's a really good percentage. And you can say, this works empirically. I don't have to go and try to take the plant apart down to one constituent and try to say, this is the only active constituent in this plant. That's really not how plant medicine works. I think plant medicine lends itself well to that pragmatic mindset that that allows us to get that empirical evidence that's not it's not the same as Western medicine approach where you only do one thing at a time in a double blind type right. of situation. You just, you can't really do that with a lot of verbal medicine. So what it comes down to really is, is actually doing something that works and doing it enough to where you can say, yeah, this, you know, this is really reliable. Right. Exactly. It's like a, a synergy, right? Like all the different, like you said, the elements of that make up a plant kind of work together to or if you have a couple different plants, you know, that there's this whole, what is it? The sum is greater than the parts or something like that. So you're getting a different benefit. And I know there's a big difference between yarrow that's growing in a a nice wet, lush part of my yard versus down by the river where it's just sand and gravel. And you got this little yarrow coming up. And I remember just trying different tea and remember drinking some of that and going, man, this is really different. Nicely. So yeah. just go, oh, yeah, I bet you this is different. So I remember always thinking, oh, yeah, if I ever get like I get an infection on my foot or something like that, like a little cut or something, and it was starting to get a little red. And I would just go, yeah, I'm going to go down to the river and get this one plant because this plant seems like it's had a it's had to really take care of its business. I'm going to see if I can get a few leaves off that, crush it up, put it on. And always seem to take it away. Whereas the 
the one that had lots of water and lots of nutrients just seemed more lush and a little bit more diluted, but more little gentle. So it was just neat to learn just the difference of just from where they grow. There's a huge that's, difference, right? Yeah, that's the crux of a lot of things that I think go on in herbalism. People don't understand how much depth and really complexity there is. Yeah, you have to learn that you you that there's not the exact same plant like you said can grow in two different environments. You can harvest it two different ways. You can extract it in different ways. You can dry it differently, and you can all the things that you can do to the same plant, supposedly the same species. They give you two totally different, not totally different medicines, but give you maybe the best you can do is say there's a sort of a spectrum, there's sort of a profile that we can take of this plant that says, yeah, okay, within this profile, we know it sits somewhere up here or down here. And I think that's as close as you can usually get. You can't ever take it apart and say, again, that out of the 10,000 constituents that are in this plant, that we have, it's because we have less of this particular active constituent, that just, that's, that doesn't work. And, and there is even research out there that shows you can take literally the, the active constituents out of a plant and still get the same medicinal effect in several cases. So right. you don't really know how it works. And, and I think you can't approach herbal medicine entirely from that Western, what I would call a medical herbalism type of approach. It's been, a, it was part of maybe the first renaissance out of the woo period of verbalism. When you go all the way back, I'll say the, the 1910s and the, the Flexner reports, and it's what I think of as like a dark cloud of smokescreen that the pharmaceutical industry created over herbalism to where plant medicine was bad. Prior to that, allopathic medicine was like a bad word. That's where you went to die. And they yeah. were working with mercury and arsenic. And so and the herbalist, it was usually where you would go <laughs> to get actually help. But- what happened was this 90 to 190 years, at least 80 years, let's say, of this kind of smokescreen and then an entire medical education that by law had to be a certain way and is entirely dictated by the pharmaceutical industry. I can say that because I got into med school. I know what I had to learn from physiology yeah. was specific to just nothing more than physiology as it applies, only as it applies to the active, to the pathways and mechanism of action of pharmaceutical medicine. That's it. That's all they care. Yeah. That's all they care. So, and that's fine. I'm not saying that's not the right way to, to to do that. I think that, but my point is that there are several different paradigms to look at health with. And I think it's really important to understand that. And so one of them, like you were talking about, is that um, plants, again, are a living medicine. And the way to understand them in this kind of renaissance that happened in the late 90s or so here of the last century are of this kind of medical herbalism understanding of saying this plant has this constituent and that constituent and this constituent. And that's fine. I think it's good. You need to know phytochemistry. And especially as you start to make medicine, it's good to know what solvents to use and, and so forth and what steps to take to really get the, a great extract that's the profile you want. However, that is just a tiny part and not even necessarily a highly and entirely accurate part by itself of how plant medicine probably works. And so I think there are it's really important to, to to bear that in mind and to keep an open mind about that. Now, that doesn't mean that necessarily that folk medicine or that woo medicine is really the ne necessarily the answer either by any stretch of the imagination. But I think anything that you can base on good empiricism and just getting that data back to you over hundreds or thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. And so when you go yeah. to something like traditional Chinese medicine, at least where it started, or even Ayurvedic medicine, and a lot of the inf information I used to get 15 or 20 years ago was off of research that you would find from plants that have been used in folk medicine in India or in China and been used then coming through the Ayurvedic or coming through the TCM eventually uh, channel. And they're, they're researching saying, hey, we know this works. 
but how does it work? And if yeah. you go the same kind of research being done in America, be like, yeah, we pretty much don't think it works. And we're going to show you that it doesn't work. That's, it's like a whole different of where you're coming from that, that determines what your outcome is going to be. And I think that we had a philosophy professor in my undergrad uh, years of in the mid eighties, when I got out of the army the first time, and I decided to take a bunch of philosophy classes, just trying to figure out what I was going to do. And um, this guy, he was one of the most intelligent human beings I think I've ever seen or listened to. But um, he was talking about how when he came, went through undergrad, he wanted to go into physics, he wanted to be a physicist. And so he was um, sitting in the physics lab one-on-one and it was like, I don't know, taking a half-life of something, radium or something. And he had a Geiger counter and he said, I'd read the textbook. I'd read the lab book. I was like, so I just drew the graph that they were, we were going to get. And then I sat down and was reading a novel or something. And the TA comes up and was like, what do you think you're doing? And I was like, well, blah, blah, blah. I read it. This is the graph. And he sent me to go talk to the professor. So he goes to the professor and the professor's like, all right, what's up? I said, you're asking me basically to measure uh, a substance that you designed a, a, a device to measure in the first place. And so really all you're asking me to do, if you're going to have me calibrate a Geiger counter, you could at least pay me minimum wage because that's all I'm doing here. And he said, at that point, the physics professor strongly suggested I go into philosophy. <laughs> but you know, at the upper levels of physics is philosophy. I have a brother who's a doctor in physics. And it's as he says, too, it's, it's all philosophy, really. And yeah. so I think the plant medicine fits in that and, and so all the things we talk about with living close to the earth and, and these skills, they are all a, a, a branch of philosophy and of understanding the earth in a way that's not necessarily analytical and it's not necessarily the Western mind. But we need that Western mind to be able to take part of that, yeah. take it in and to be able to analyze. And yet the heart and the intuition and this nonlinear kind of approach, I think, is much more, I don't want to say sound, but a much more what I want to say, oh gosh, what's the word? Synchronized with what really we're looking at when we look at the plants. It's I've heard people say that you have this idea of, oh, there's an intuitive element and there's like a place where like the plants communicate. And I've had that experience where I've gone out and went, oh, I need something to help me with something. And I feel like, oh, I feel like I should go this direction. And I just go there and take whatever, 30 feet or 100 yards, and all of a sudden, there it is. There's tons of it growing. It's exactly chickweed, or I did that with food. Not so, I was, I've never really been an herbalist per se, but I just found that like by really listening to the land, it seemed like I would find things. And it wasn't just me thinking, oh, if I need this, I'll go to the river. Because sometimes it would be like, I feel like I should go up the hill instead of down. And I'm not sure why, but I'm going to trust that. And every time I trusted it, it was great. Every time I didn't trust it, I kind of wander around for six hours. So there's just this like element there that is a little bit more, there's more of a system to it than not, right? It's not just, oh, I'm just making things up randomly. There is something there. However, it's not easy to translate that to beakers and labs and like all the hard science when it comes to that too. I don't think it's even, I don't think it's even possible really to translate into our particular spoken language very easily, unless you, unless, excuse me, we have a language that actually is designed to be able to do that. And I think that's similar to dream time in Aboriginal ideas that the dream time itself is you can't translate what that is into spoken words. You might be able to translate into pictures to some degree, how these maps would work that, um, Aboriginal tribes will move across the song lines of what is now Australia and, and then on their way do these things. And the maps to get there don't look 
anything like spatial reality to us. They look like a Van Gogh painting or something. They don't look like any, it means what right. is. And so I think, and, and there's a way to be able to, I think, gain that knowledge in yourself a lot of times just by trusting, like you said, this feels better this way. I'm going to trust it. And then you learn. And the more you use it, the better you, it's like any kind of building muscle, the better you get better at it as you use it more. And I think the big problem in the analytical mind in the first world America that we grow up in, and maybe Europe is this way too, I don't know. But growing up as American in a first world environment very much, the big jump, I think, is always projection versus perception. It's very easy on the analytical side to just project. We're just inundated with images and news and horrible news to good news all the time. And it's so easy to project into any of that and be paranoid for good reason that you walk around the corner, somebody's going to kill you or jump you or mug you or whatever. And it's really easy to project that versus to actually turn all of that off and perceive it. And when you do that, and when you learn to do that, and there are exercises you can do to get there, in my opinion, I used to teach this as part of our scout uh, uh, portion of our courses, it's like turning that off completely. And then figuring out what is that feeling? Is it like a tingly feeling up the back of your neck? Is it whatever that is, yeah. learning to find that by by getting there. And then and that's teaching your body that language that is not really, like I said, it's not really something we can put into words very easily. It's something that's a physical language, I think. Yeah, it's, a, I hate to say holistic because holistic seems like it just gets applied to a lot of different things and can seem kind of corny, but it does feel like they're, there are things that I've experienced, just like what you're saying, because I've gone through some of those types of trainings as well. And yeah, I remember being at one of Tom Brown's classes and we're learning about trying to trust your intuition. And like you said, turning that off a little bit and then allowing that other communication to happen. And I remember Tom just saying, I can tell you what we're trying to do, but I can't tell you how you're going to perceive it because everybody's different. So like somebody will feel it in the pit of their stomach. Someone will feel it, like you said, on the back of your neck. Some people will feel it in like a, a, a warmth in one direction or they'll, some people feel it as a pull. Uh, and so it was just like, really, I was just like, how the heck are I going to learn how to do this? Because I don't get it. And I don't, and I'm trying to figure out in my body what's going on. And then all of a sudden I remember just suddenly just hearing something or just feeling like I got to go here. It's just like something pulled me right there. And then when I got it, I was like, all right, but I've tried teaching this with teenagers and man, teenagers love it when we start getting into it. They really dig this stuff because yeah, I think so. exactly. I think children are still connected to that more, even younger are able to do that. Yeah. And I've never been, we've never really done children other than a short period of time, done a foray into uh, child education or for kids. I think that there's a special place for that and you have to be the right kind of person for it. And I'm just not, I just, I don't. I hate, you know, I'm just, I hate kids. I'm joking. No, I, don't no, no, no. I love my kids. And, and it's just, I'm not built for that. I'm doing work much better with adults, but I hear what you're saying. And I think you could, uh, we used to do this drill all the time where during the scout portion of our core basic, where, you know, one person, first we would do this whole idea, um, some standing meditation and some Qigong type stuff where we're breathing through our different organs and then getting to, and then put on a blindfold. And then we we would talk about like intent. What is the intent? So everybody has a stick, like we do some throwing stick stuff and everybody's got a stick. And so it's, what's your intent? Like, I want you to have the intent, like you're going to hurt somebody or going to, and then we get into the fight and we do some adrenaline drill and stuff and some actual fights uh, from that. But before right. once they've got that intent, it's like everybody gets in a circle and it's like seven or eight people in a circle around one person in the center with a blindfold on. 
And their job is to basically, they'll point, whoever will point to the person that's going to go. And their job is to try to sneak up on that person, but to have the intent the whole way. Like they're going to hit them with that stick until they can get to the point where they can tap them on the shoulder. And so it doesn't work if you're, you know, if you're just like, oh, I'm their friend. They've got to project that intent in order for this person to feel it really, and especially yeah. in the beginning. Anyway, my point is that you never know like what you're going to get. Like we, I remember I had this one student one time that was just like, he was just pure redneck trailer kind of dude, man. And bless his heart, he was, he was a wonderful guy. But <laughs> I, like when he, I like when I started teaching, I was like, this dude is going to think I am just this total freaky California hippie that he doesn't, he's going to walk right. out of the class. But he just sat there and he's okay. So he put on the blindfold that he was about third or fourth person to go. And this dude was incredible. He would be like, he's standing there. And I, the drill was you turn to whatever, wherever danger is coming from. And you give him like, a, we learn our military signals for halt, freeze. And you just give the freeze sign, but you need to be facing within about maybe 20 or 30 degrees. Then we call it good. And this guy, man, they point to the person wouldn't even hardly take a step and he'd be like, turn around. I failed. I yeah. failed. Oh, I threw that all the way down my back. Right. Talking just like that. And yeah. Oh my God, this guy's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, it's a connection that, that some people are able to keep and don't lose through the transition from childhood to being an adult. Maybe. That's true. That's really true. It's so interesting because when I was younger, I lived, I grew up in upstate New York and just in a really rural area. And so I just read a lot. I got really got into like comic books and superheroes. And I remember one of the things I loved about like Spider-Man is he had that spider sense, right? So he could tell even though something's coming that he didn't even see or could feel. He just knew and could get out of the way. And then when I started to discover that that intuitive sense that I could get would do a similar thing, it was so exciting to me to suddenly just go, hey, that 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 comic book, which is just a story, is actually something that feels like it's actually real. And I it just blew me away because I really got into I really got into the mythology of the stories, the, that whole thing. And there's of course other superheroes that can do a lot of other things. And to realize that many of them are based on things that obviously we're not doing now, but in, for most people, but that they, you could develop that, whether it's some of them that could heal, it can heal things faster. I don't know, communicating with animals or plant, whatever they are, but it's just such an interesting thing for me to, as a kid, as a teenager, and then as an adult, suddenly going, what is happening? What's happening right now? You know, I must've been pretty exciting for that guy to suddenly go, Hey, I get this. This I'm a hundred percent in. And what a cool experience, right? To to have that. Really is, yeah, I agree. And I think some of the mythology there, mm -hmm. I did the same thing when I was a teenager, like a pre really like 12, 13 years old. I was so into martial arts and mm -hmm. my parents were determined for me not to be because they were worried I was going to break my hands or something. And I was, you know, I played com um, competitive classical piano, which I didn't want to have anything to do with. I got a paper out and paid for my, and I could bike to my, to my first martial arts lessons and such. But I, I would check out these books. These are back when you have those old stupid books that would have all the different moves, pictures of them. And, you, and so anyway, there was a book that I got though. I still remember it was called Kung Fu, I think by, by a guy by the name of Spangler, David Spangler or something like that, Richard Spangler. And uh, in the back of it, <clears throat> It had all these pictures from these Qigong demonstration in mainland China, taken back in the 50s or 60s, I think. 
probably back after the revolution when they were trying to show like the history of China type of thing. And, was, oh, yeah. and these are people that supposedly they spend their entire lifetime in like a temple learning Qigong. And so they're doing these crazy things like lying on a bed of 10 foot, I'm sorry, 10 inch the nails right. and holding like bricks and a sledgehammer breaking the bricks and they're getting up and not a mark on their back. And just one thing after another. And then there's all these little, like in the back, there's this little diagrams of how these different types of gungs, your work, gung meaning your work. So learning how to move energy, like through a palm strike through the air, like literally Spider-Man, like we would consider comic book stuff. And I think sure. that mythology is comic book stuff too. I don't know this for sure, but I think in, in China, that was the comic book figures. Yeah. I remember, you know, I'm getting like this first thing is you rub your hands in the sand a thousand times per day, and then you get to where you can move the sand. And I was doing that stuff when I was like 13, thinking, I'm going to do this. And I was practicing yeah. Qigong every day. And what I took from that was literally it, Qigong did change my life physically in the sense that I think it got me through special forces assessment selection phase and the Q course without any injuries and being pretty much at the top 5% of my class physically the entire time through. But it was, I never, like, even if I only had three hours of sleep a night during some of the worst parts during Goat Lab and so forth, maybe four hours if you're lucky for the weeknights, I would wake up and the first thing I would do is just breathe. I just, I'd mm. sit there and breathe for, maybe I can only spare two minutes, but that's all I would do, even if I couldn't get up and actually do any exercises. And otherwise I'd go out to the woods and I never did this public or anything, but I would go out in the woods and find a spot and just do some Qigong every day. And that really was helpful to me. And then when I go into TCM school, just got my master's science in acupuncture, which I just recently did. That was fairly recent for me, very recent for me. I used to graduate a year and a half ago, really, from that. Nice. And in the clinic where I started working with needles on acupuncture, it was like it all came together. So, oh, yeah, this chi I've been working with for my entire life. Wow, maybe there's a reason. That, <laughs> it's like if I could travel in time and give myself a book back when I was 13, this probably would have been a book. And here I am. And I feel it. I can do this. And here's all these other people that even grew up in the culture. A lot of people from mainland and Thailand, uh, Taiwan and so forth that are there that grew up in that culture even, but had no idea. They had no clue. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm not trying to be disparaging, but they just, they never done the work because right. they didn't grow up doing Qigong. They never even really, it was a term and Qi was a term that they understood, but to actually feel it in your body takes years of work. Or maybe not, but for me, it did. Right. It took years yeah. and years. Anyway, that's, I know we're diverting off of the path here a little bit. That, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> What's interesting about all these things is that for me, like I learned when I would go out and be out in the wilderness or be working somewhere, there were, there was always like two things that seemed to happen. Like one was like something where I'm like, oh, I'm exhausted, but I still have to teach all day with a bunch of kids. And I remember just like walking on the trail, going up to the camp and just reaching my hand out and catching the plants there. And just asking the nature to say, hey, you're going to have to help me out because I'm like, I'm operating on two hours of sleep. And but I really want to be here to serve these kids. And all of a sudden, by the time I get there, I'm able to go all day and I'm actually energized. I actually feel like I have lots of energy or being able to um, just find in when you have to do something really hard or it's like really stormy out and you still got to get it done to be able to just tap into that peak side of myself for a short period of time to be able to just get the job done and not have it crush my soul. You know what I mean? But, and then the, but do the opposite be like, Hey, I don't care if it's snowing, I'm going to figure it out. And sometimes you just don't have anybody else to help you and you have to just figure it out and you have to do something that might feel impossible. 
And I just always think like how valuable these experiences are for, for kids or teenagers or adults or anyone really to understand that it, it's just, we're not, we don't have to be dominated by our thinking, by our thoughts or slipping into that victim stage or whatever, but you, we can actually take it to a different level. And I feel like that's what you're saying. And that's what that Qigong and everything is like this allowing you to focus and then shift your awareness to a different part of us rather than being like, oh, poor me, I have to put my snowplow on in the middle of a storm and whatever it is and just feel bad. I don't know. I just don't like feeling bad like that. So I just, I just don't if, if I can possibly no. avoid it. You look at, I think earlier versions of ourselves go back and go back hundreds of years or even just, gosh, just go back three or four generations and there are people that live pretty hard lives compared to what we live now and just did it because they had to. And and even putting up with the emotional things. I remember my dad, he was grew up in a very large family out on a ranch in, in Eastern Oregon. When they, he remembers the depression years, he was a child oh, and yeah. um, he was one of those, the DNA that we call it the horse DNA ran through him. He was a horse person. And my daughter is now, she works, uh, jumps horses and trains horses and sells horses down in Mexico. And that's her thing. She started at the age of six. She was a horse person. My My sister, one of my sisters was a horse person. He was too. My dad was, and he loved horses. And he had a pet horse that was the only horse on the ranch that wasn't really a workhorse. And it was just, it was, I was given to them or something, but there was one winter where they had, they had nothing. Like there was nothing to eat and they had to eat his horse. And it's like, he remembers like how painful and how horrible and it was for everybody. It wasn't like, it wasn't like the family wanted to do this. Those kinds of decisions and those kinds of that kind of life is something that is just completely foreign, I think, to most people. And of course, there's people not that are growing up that are highly under underserved and, and underprivileged. And there are people still in this country. You go to some different even places like on Navajo Nation, uh, you'll find areas that literally people have to walk every morning to go and get their water for the day. There are definitely places where you have find that. But by and large, the vast majority of people have no idea what it means to have to make those decisions and have a hard life, what we would consider to be a hard life. That's not, there's a lot of things that are much, much harder than that to people grow up. Right. You know, think you're growing up as a kid right now in Syria or, or sure. I don't want to be political, but literally if you're in Palestine right now, your life is, yeah. is horrible. There's no guarantee that you're going to have tomorrow or anything. Yeah. 100%. So I think all of these things like connect us to the earth. They connect us to something, some energy there. It's like I used to say, you could think you're completely trashed. You've worked, it would done whatever, ran a hundred miles or ran 10 miles or ran a mile, whatever it is that your body. And then if somebody's trying to kill you, are you going to find that energy to, to get up and fight or to run or whatever you got to do? And the answer sure. is probably yes, for the most part. But I think there's another aspect that we think of in the West and we say, yeah, just the mental toughness. And that's true. But I do think also this, the idea of chi and the idea of, you were talking about re-earthing and connecting to the earth, all of those are different patterns, I think, to get us back to some kind of an energy that, that is unexplainable, that we can't explain with science. And um, back to that Geiger counter example, the until we have a, until we have a instrument to basically explain what it is that we've designed the instrument for, because we perceived in the first place, that we don't have a way of merely measuring or understanding that. And right. I think chi, in my opinion, is the concept of she is is like the molecular aspect of life force. And that life force is different. You have different chi from the earth or from a tree or from a from an herbaceous plant than you will from a human being or from a dog or from an animal. 
so I think, and, and you'll have uh, different chi throughout your body as it gets changed. And that concept and that idea is something that goes back thousands and thousands of years. And again, back to empiricism. So I don't, I don't buy into every aspect of that by any means, but I do buy into enough of it to be able to touch into it with myself. Mm-hmm. And like you say, we live, if you live your life more intuitively, then you start to realize that the signposts for what you're doing, where you're going, especially if you're living close to the earth in some way, they appear every day or like to you, there'll be, there'll be signposts. I remember I used to go and uh, I'm a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but it took me about 15 years to get there. But I started doing it really. And I did some amateur MMA back in the very beginning, back in the late nineties until I realized I was too old to be getting kicked in the head and got into grappling then. Right. And I used to run about two miles down to this one martial arts place that had these two brothers that taught like the Japanese jiu-jitsu there. And I would run there and then I would grapple with both of them. We would just, and just, I wasn't like a paid for anything. We just, we wanted to work out. They right. dug the workout and we would do everything, gun disarms and we'd have plastic guns and knives, but but mostly it'd just be grappling. And I'd just go one after the other or two on one sometimes. we just play with all these different ideas because it was so new at the time. And and then I'd you know run home. And one time I had... I had to drive and I wasn't happy about that. So I was, I was pissed off and I get there and I pull in. I'm like, man, I really need that run to start me with and to finish with. And so I pull in and then I'm not there. And so I end up getting injured. I injured my shoulder a little bit. And I'm like, I was really pissed off about that. And so I had to end early and I'm really just furious. I'm driving back on this crowd on this road that's, you know, in Denver, that's a real busy street. And I'm just like, God damn it. And then all of a sudden this car, like this VW bug just cuts me off and pulls into the lane. I have to brake, almost hit him. And I'm like, you son of a... And then I realized it's got a, a bumper sticker and it says, she going happens. <laughs> oh, message. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. I think, for, I don't know if you notice this, but I know when I'm teaching like children, even we just did a wilderness survival weekend three weeks ago. And just teaching really simple things like coal burning and whittling and building a shelter and learning how to make a one match fire and things like that. Like the change that I saw with some of the children and some of the adults, like I, I, you might say it's like their chi or something, but it felt like their eyes were a little brighter. They were standing a little taller. They were like excited. They would get up and then go, what are we doing today? Like they were really excited about just, you could tell they shifted out of either like fear or depression or anxiety or or happiness because I spent some money or whatever it is. But it's like a, a space that was set, set aside or is in a different place where you're like experiencing life in a, in maybe in a way that was, is how we're meant to live. And, yeah. and I'm just curious, like when you're teaching these programs, do you notice that with your adult students, like that they change? Oh, absolutely. It's incredible. And I think it's just this engaging. It's how much our our entire austere program. I remember we used to do this on our San Antonio campus when we were still there. And I remember one time, so we have this austere medicine program that's gets it's basically answers. It. So we obviously do wilderness first aid and advanced wilderness first aid, wilderness first responder, but then that ends. Okay, that's all about getting them to higher care, right? And making a decision yeah. and evacuation and packaging them and getting them there and stabilizing them and all that stuff if you have to make the decision. But now 
guess what? There is no higher care. Okay, what are we going to do? And so I put that program together with a medical doctor who also started as a U.S. Special Forces medic like I did, but about 10 years before I did. And then he's been a doc in rural Utah for about 30 or 40 years. He's an incredible doc. And we've done, we've put together collaboratively this austere medicine program that merges the worlds of Western allopathic emergency care and herbalism in the field specifically. And based on what works and what I've done in the field with our outreach organization and all over the Nicaragua and Mexico and rural areas, really, really underserved areas in the U.S. And um, when we first started doing that austere program down, the, the, I remember the, it was like the first time we did a five-day onsite. They have to do all of these prerequisites online first and they come down and do the five-day at the time. And it was the first day. And I was like, we're going to do some medicine making and we're going to go and harvest what we need. What I'd like to get is some wafer ash and trifoliata. trifoliata. There's a bunch of it that grows on the far end of the property. It's a 50 acre property. And we had a bunch that grew down there as, and it was a perfect time to harvest it. So let's go down there. And it was just starting to rain and we get, and we no longer, we get like halfway down there and it's just pouring rain. It just, it just turned into this huge, massive burst. It was only lasted for about half an hour, but it was just happening when we were out there. I'm thinking, oh God, people are going to be bitching about this. We cut what we need to come back and people are soaked to the bone, get back. People are chilled, they're warming up. We, we'd start, of course, it's austere medicine. So we start the fire. We do a little bit of a, a thing. And oh my God, people talked about that day, that first day as being the most amazing opening to any course they'd ever had. Right. For like months afterwards, they would, I would get emails and stuff. Yeah, it's, I think it's, you put, you help people push their boundaries a little bit and that opens them then to some aspect of themselves that they never understood was connected before. And it right. grounds them, and it connects them, and it gets them really engaged in our planetary, our planetary reality, which is far different than the, the reality that we created with boxes that we live in and, and drive and so forth. That's true. That's so true with the, like it, it, for me as an educator, I'm trying to like say, I'm going to be pushing you to go to a different place. So I'm going to push you to do it, not in a, you have to, but I'm going to invite you to, to come with me to that new place. Because in our today's culture, most people won't normally say, oh, it's pouring rain out. I think I'll go outside. Like it's, we're really discomfort avoidant. So we'll go, oh, I want to constantly default to comfortable and safe and distracted or whatever it is. And, but when we get pushed to outside of those limits, all of a sudden you discover there's this whole other room in your house and you're like, Hey, this isn't that bad. And, right. and I'm like, what was I afraid of? So it's all of a sudden you're stepped outside of fear and outside that fear of discomfort or fear that everyone's telling you, or you got to be careful because everyone's trying to get you. Or I don't know, that seems like the dominant thing is like being really anxious or being, and being afraid. And then getting angry and manipulated just seems like that's where everybody's at. Attitude is one of those things that just, yeah. just it's almost impossible to train, to teach out of attitude. And this was a big thing that I've gone through for, because most of the stuff that we would teach was to get people ready to go in, uh, to be on a team, our herbal medics teams. And it's all about attitude, especially if you're going to a little, we go, the first one was like a little village, La Uva, that we had to walk into about six miles in to the very rural we're all the basically very rural area in, in Nicaragua on the West Coast, off the West Coast there. And it's you're going to be in there with these people for over a week, creating slow sand filtration, running herbal clinics and so forth. And it's really important that the attitude is right as a team. And it's just yeah. amazing you know, to me how one person's attitude can change an entire team's attitude 
for good or bad, either way. Sure. It's incredible. I should know that stuff because I saw it in the military. The difference was in the military. It's at least when I was in, and especially in special forces, is shape it's shape up or ship out. It's like you do. You if you're bad attitude, you're gone. It's just that's not always true. There's politics and everything everywhere, but it's it was my experience for the most part, and, and thankfully, and that's what I did like about it was you could really you could really and you could really speak to people exactly at that ground level of saying get your shit together type of attitude uh, about it, and you can't do that really in the civilian world. But I think that attitude. What I was getting to here was that's the same thing with just the attitude about how you perceive, like you were mentioning, going outside in the cold or whatever. So it's like this discomfort level. Let's say there's a foot of snow outside and it's cold and it's, oh, it's uncomfortable. That's one way to look at it. But then think about it if you're a five-year-old kid, my daughter, whenever it would snow in Colorado, oh my God, she could not wait to get out there in that snow and build snow forts and we had two dogs too we've rescued dogs for 20 years and i had two at the time and i'd hook them up to a sled and she'd pull her up and down the street and uh it was just it was like this attitude and then when you know we would go out to mountains and do some cross-country skiing or whatever and it was never like oh i'm so cold it was more like just discovery idea that you might be cold but it's you're you have no focus whatsoever on that at all it's all on yeah. your environment and, and being completely again engaged in your That's environment right. and i think when people see that, there's an there's literally an on-off switch there almost. And they experience that. I think that's where really you you get that that look in the eye. And the people that really feel they've learned something, even though what they've learned has been inside them all the time. They just that's right. turn the switch right. on. But you're getting the you're getting almost like permission to turn that switch on and off or to just go, hey, I don't have to do, I don't have to do option A, B, or C. I can do D. And you've given me this, a number of different options and a number of different ways to look at things. And that's, what's really phenomenal. And just even you talking about like herbal first aid or going, going to these clinics or any of that, just, it just makes it real. It's this reality piece to it, which sometimes we can get excited about the theoretical aspects or we're like, oh, I if this, then this, and you have it all laid out in your mind, but then it's a whole nother thing when you're actually, like you said, in a little village with a bunch of people and they don't have the option to go to LA, get surgery or something or whatever it is. They're not going to get that, the the best treatment in Dallas or something, but they, you can still be there and serve them and support what they're doing and ease human suffering and have that be something that's really amazing. Yeah, it's just life-changing for everyone, really, in a lot yes. of ways. Yeah. Yeah, I really think that's the key. Outdoor education in general is that you have to be able to get people involved in the outdoors. And I think there's, there's if you look around, there's schools that do that really well and schools mm -hmm. that don't. And it's one of those things, I think, most, a lot of outdoor education and, and schools and is very, it's very fickle in terms of the economy too. Sure. It's very difficult. It's hard to see a survival school that lasts for a long time. There's a few out there that have done it, but it's, they come and go. And that was part of the reason that we went, we stayed, it certainly wasn't the main reason, but it was part of the deciding factor because we had, we were like a mile wide and about a half inch deep on a lot of stuff, right? We just, I taught so many stuff. I'd teach bow making one week and then I'd teach whatever shelter and stuff the next weekend and then it would be some sort of a scouting thing and then it would be herbalism and then it would be it would just an right. self-defense and it was just like the what i noticed immediately was that where people were really interested in was herbal medicine and just from a standpoint of pure economic survival there was that like that's where the revenue was going to be 
and it can support all these other pieces. We even did homesteading and all kinds of stuff. And of course, off-grid engineering, we had all in this, and we still do, but it's right, different right. now. It's all streamlined towards medicine now. So we have a, a new advanced party type of education for people that are going to, they want to be scouts, but it's medical, sure. actually useful. It's not just somebody living in a Spider-Man fantasy and not to use your Spider-Man thing too sure, much. Sure, sure. No, but yeah, this idea that I'm the ninja in the woods and nobody can, and if the world ends tomorrow, I could survive by myself and I can do this. And it's like, it's great, wonderful. If that does, that's what gets you off. That's wonderful. But what helps people right now? And how can you help real people with real problems and real communities yeah. are asking for help? We need people to be able to do medical response, uh, reconnaissance and understand ingress and egress and security for the team and understand epidemiology and, and, and cultural epidemiology and all those things in order for us to be able to have a successful mission and go in and help people that are asking us for help where it's right. really useful or post-disaster. We've done that as well, of course. So that's um, an actual, I think that has to be part of for us, anyway, what turns it into the school that's been, that we've been very successful, uh, you know, 15, going on 16 years now of this version of the school, where a big part of that success is that we turn it into something very practical, usable, and we have a reputation that where a certificate means something. And of course, we have CEUs and we're trying to slowly integrate far more into the mainstream educational right. system as well and accreditation and all of that. But it's usable. People get out and they're like, yeah, I can do something with this. And I think that's, that's really important to be able to put in there too. And I think that's maybe the bane of a lot of survival school type teaching is how do you do this in a way that's useful? I remember way back in the very beginning teaching bow drill fires when, or no, I think I was doing a hand, I don't know what it was, it was a hand drill fire. And so I was teaching that we had this like advanced fire making. So we did hand drill fire. So I'm sitting there doing it. And it was somebody from one of our other classes that she was getting ready to leave. And I'm sitting there demonstrating hand drill fire and she walks up with a lighter and starts clicking it to be a smart ass. And I'm just like, yeah, your point is well taken. If you got a lighter, you don't need this stuff. Sure. Do we really need to know how to do a hand drill fire? It's really cool to know that with two pieces of wood and maybe yeah. even just, just with a piece of sharp piece of rock, you can actually start a fire. It's pretty cool. And I think it gives you a sense of not just accomplishment, but a sense of what's the word? Uh, independence. Yeah, freedom. Incredible. Yeah, freedom. Yeah. And just I can walk naked out here in the woods and I can do this. To, yeah. to be at that level, I think is very important. To experience at least. Yeah. And of course, you and I know you can't, I can't teach that class unless I have at least a week to work on my calluses and my technique. And yeah, I can't just sure. do that right now. I, I'll be covered in blisters tomorrow. But you can get there and you can stay there if that's where you want to be. And I think that's right. a really cool thing for people to want to go there. But then back to the practicality is, is it better just to pack some different fire makers in your kit and, and know that you've always got them in your pockets or whatever, maybe, but not everybody's the same. And I think so whatever you can do to be able to give people that feeling of practicality, though, in the end, whether it's just that sense of complete self-sufficiency and that's what they're right. after, and that's what they take from it. They're like, yep, that's what I needed from this. Or it's, I really need to know just practically what I pack in my car in case we sure. get stranded in the middle of nowhere. That's And that's what's interesting about like the survival, like what you said before about survival schools, where they don't necessarily have a lot of longevity because a variety of reasons probably but what I've noticed that seems to be happening in like the nature education movement as it's getting integrated, it feels like if you want to get nature into a school or into modern culture, it helps to find a, a piggyback. So in other words, if you do forest experiences and creative writing, you can get credit, you can get paid. If you can do, if you do uh, bow drill fires and you can tie that in with science and earth science and heat and friction and 
all those things. That now all of a sudden you can get in there. If you're doing building shelters and making buckskin and making pouches, and then you're using it to illustrate early, early Native American life, uh, you know, boom, you're in social studies. So it's if we can find a way to pair that, then it's something that's really awesome. And I think sometimes the survival parts of things get a little bit where it's, I don't know, just going down the road of here we are pretty soon, the shit's going to hit the fan and everything's going to go south and, and you're going to all need to run into the wilderness and fight for your, the last acorn or something. And like, there, it's hard to pair anything with that because there's a, there's an understanding of the value of it, of course. But at the same time, there's a reluctance maybe to, to, I don't know, give it credibility when that's not really what we want to do. Like nobody, I've lived in the woods for a long time. And I'll tell you what, it's lonely. It's lonely. There's parts where you go, oh, it's beautiful. And I'm just having a good time out here. But then there's other parts where you're like, yeah, I don't know, man. It's really fun to hang out with my friends and sit around this carving and have some pizza and cook something over the fire and be together. Right. And so it's, yeah, it's interesting to see where all of this will go eventually. And well, and I think you touched on something there that's very important that you can pull out from as a survival school or or whatever, an outdoor education school. And that's the idea of community. And, and that's where I went with the whole survival concept. And when we were teaching, it was, and that's why I did the core basic, because it was like a little mini, tiny, mini Q course totally dumbed down and, and for, for civilians. But we would, at the end, there's a whole situation where they had to go out and do reconnaissance on an area and practice all the sure. stuff we talked about and understand how to move and how to create perimeter and how to have a forward kind of operating base that they'd move out from to set up their recon. And that, during that time, then we would have our out for our opposing forces out looking for them and stuff too. And so that was great because it really pulled together the commitments. And then afterwards, there's this real bonding moment uh, that would happen or bonding time that would happen. And the community, I think, aspect of it was something that prior to that, it was in my experience and my thoughts and just me myself was doing this stuff all by myself was always like, yeah, if I need to, I can do this stuff by myself. And like you said, living out in the woods for a long time is really, there's some right. things that get old from that too. We need community from that. We need community for survival. Even if the world did end, there's no way you're going to survive alone. There's You got to yeah. sleep sometimes. You got to be able to eat. You need a minimum of about 40 or 50 people in a community just to be able to do everything that needs to happen. That's just working all the time, let alone yeah. really having any kind of time off and being able to, to grow and to, to evolve, hopefully, in the human condition. So that whole idea, and so we would get we had a huge prepper kind of initial influx as our first demographic or part of our first demographic. And that just didn't work. There were some of the, and I hopefully I don't make anybody mad with this, but they were some of the worst team players. And some of the people that would give up the fastest were people that were self-described preppers and they were using the worst shape. And it was, it was just constantly right. this like model that we know, Oh God, here we go. And then there was a, the, what my wife called the operator in the type. So they like, they never served in the military. They never done anything, let alone gone anywhere in special ops or anything like that. But they're wearing the hat and they got the beard and they got, they look like the guys working over in Afghanistan and Iraq and they're like chewing tobacco and talking. They, they, they uh, learned all the acronyms and, and then, and those again, horrible team players. And that's, they don't even understand how important it is to be on a team You in, in the military, but certainly in special operations environment. You have to be willing to put your life in the hands of, of people that are on your team, and you have to be willing to have them put right. their lives in your hand hands. And it's it, there's a whole different kind of community level thing that happens there. 
And so there again, it was a big miss. So what I found really was people that were coming in to learn herbalism were very community minded. Like, hey, this is cool. Yeah. Let's do, let's get together and do this now. Let's do that. And they were, they would, we form these bonds. They're still together. We've had sure. students for 10 years, 12 years off and on that are still together. And we've had people that were divorced because of our school and people that got married in our school. And it's like their life, <laughs> nothing that we meant to happen, but it just what happened. Yeah. So. That's so true. And that's what is interesting is a lot of people are reluctant to give up the fantasy of, oh, I'm going to learn these skills and then I won't need anybody and I'll be able to control everything and I'll be better than every there's just all these little fantasies all stacked up like a house of cards or something and then and then when they go to a course like yours or whatever and they suddenly realize oh i need other people or some of those cards start to fall out or you look at it and go wow that's not really what i was thinking in my brain isn't really what's happening and some people embrace it some people go hey oh wow this is a relief i don't maybe i don't have to have everything solved and be the last man standing or something and 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 that's a relief right and then other people are like no i'm gonna hang on to this and i'm gonna yeah i refuse to see it blah 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 they're not gonna, they're gonna plug their ears and just go yeah no but but it's that's how it is i don't know we've had people come to our camp show up sometimes staff sometimes participants where they'll drive up they'll hang out they'll hang out with everybody we'll have dinner and then they'll just get in their car and leave because they're like yeah this is way too real for me i can't deal with it and and i would always just say hey it's totally fine whatever you decide what's right for you i don't know you so make sure that it, you feel good and you feel and to say hey come on back if you change your mind no harm no foul yeah but it's not for everybody yeah true yeah. Yeah. We would always tell like when we, at the end of the core basic was always used, it was one of the hallmark courses for so long where people would, the class would be over. We'd finish it. We used to try to finish it by noon or 1 PM on the, on the very last day. It'd be usually a five day course. And we start real early on Monday and then in early in the afternoon on, on Friday. And um, it would be sometimes three. We had to start saying, okay, guys, we're, we're going to close down in about two hours because um, people would just want to hang out and hang out. They didn't want to yeah. leave. They, they want to have this, we've got to get together next weekend then. And how are we going to do this? And, right. and, so, and it was really, really wonderful to see that, I think. Yeah. You get these bonds that happen. And then suddenly the realization of we're going to go back to our lives. I've got a roommate that doesn't care. I've got people, you know, when you go back home and you just go, like, kids would have that happen too, where they, they go home and they'd be like, mom, dad, check out what happened at camp. And they're just like, yeah, whatever. Uh, you know, they, and I try to prep them and say, Hey, not everybody's going to understand what this is. And I would tell parents, Hey, if you don't have to immediately go home, maybe just stop somewhere. <laughs> And take a walk and like really listen to your kid and really listen to what it, because it means a lot. Put the phone down, don't be distracted and just spend a couple hours with them and really see what yeah. happens because that's going to validate them and make you, your bond stronger. And if you blow them off, it's going to hurt their, it can be tough. That's really good advice. Yeah. And I've been to a few courses over the years that I remember I, Wilderness Awareness School up in, um, you know, sure. Washington used to do a wolf tracking, they call it an advanced wolf tracking class. And Oh, that's right. Up in Idaho? Uh, yeah, up in Idaho. Yeah. I forget the name of the wilderness area. There's a huge, the big one. Um, and anyway, that man, that year I went and did that, it was just such a wonderful experience and uh, just such a good teacher's man. Dave, is it Dave? Oh, I forget his last name. Uh, he's written a lot of books. He's a great teacher, great tracker. Just And just all the people that, that are running that school, I, I was just really impressed with them. And um, 
I just remember coming out of that. Oh yeah, this is what my students experienced. It's just like this. Yeah. Got to yeah. go back to the airport of Boise and then yeah, just yep. back to the world. And it You're was just such a it. wonderful connection for a week of just doing nothing but tracking wolves and then sure. studying behavior. And oh my God, it's just, oh yeah. It's, and of course, I mean, I always, I think we always have to have ways to be able to switch from one part of our reality, that part of reality back to where it is. But I think the important thing is that we don't, that you don't turn it off and say, yeah, that's really good, but this is life. And unfortunately, life does get in the way because of the model of life that we lead. You have to have a job and you have to pay rent and you have to be part of a system that isn't really maybe (laughs) just, maybe it's not right. Maybe it's a whole bunch of things for you personally, but you got to do it. And so I think it's really you have to make decisions, hopefully, when you when you still can be fairly unfettered, hopefully, when you're early part of your adult life to be able to allow yourself, if you're going to do that, make decisions that allow you to have the time to live your life or to at least make choices that can switch your direction. Something's not working for you. It's, man, I'm, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to sit in front of a computer for 12 hours a day, five days a week in order to be able to make a paycheck. Uh, sure. There's... You can't always plan for that, right? No matter what you do. And, but there are things you can, you know, you really have to, to move your way through life in the same way that you move your way through on along the planet we were talking about earlier, where life provides. You have to, you, that to intuition goes beyond just the natural world. It's, we're part of the natural, the human condition is part of the natural world, love it or hate it. This has been great, uh, man. Uh, we covered so many things. Uh, hopefully people listening to this forest educator thing will find some value in this because it's, I did, <laughs> that's my hope, but yeah, I really appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you. Yeah. Likewise. And thanks for having me on. It's been really fun talking about all of this. Yeah. You have a good winter and stay warm down there in Taos. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator, nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.